drop down a few notches from the sort of ends, ends talking, the end Dharma talks that uh, the Paramitas see, seem to lead to or point towards and point ourselves back to something much more basic and yet much more fundamental to what we're doing here. And, and that is uh, asking the question, why meditation? I think that's a fair question, especially if we're new in it. And even if we're not, it's, it's always worthwhile to revisit what motivates us and to see and to uh, sharpen our skills and the purposes and intentions on what this practice is all about. So I offer this talk not only to those of you who are relatively new to practice, but to the ancient ones as well. (laughs) Knowing why we practice, why we meditate, if if the energy isn't there, then uh, if we don't really have a sense of what it is that compels us or aligns us with this practice, then our energies will be scattered and very little will come out of it except doubt. So um, tonight is to really look at some of that. You know, I started uh, my spiritual practice 30 years ago or so, and I started uh, with Be Here Now, which many of you might know, and I read the cookbook section, which excited me a great deal, (laughs) and I did virtually everything in that cookbook section. I was doing pranayama, standing on my head, staring at a candle flame. Everything it told me to do, I did. I had no idea why I was doing it at all. (laughs) To this day, it doesn't make much sense to me. But it made, it gave my heart some way to do something. And it felt like something was being cooked there, even if it wasn't all lined up in some logical, reasonable sense. But after a while, you can only stand on your head so long before you have to ask, why am I up in this direction? <laughs> and uh, what, is, what is this doing for me? Where, does this, where do all these things come into alignment? And it's not that the Hindu tradition doesn't have that alignment. It just didn't resonate for me. It didn't make sense enough for me to continue in that tradition. And so I left that and went into the Buddhist tradition. And I carried a kind of understanding with me that was essential for the Buddhist tradition to work. And that was that I knew that whatever the problem was, it wasn't out there. It was in here that I was carrying the problem internally, that somehow it was how I was seeing or relating to things that was the essential crisis that I was going through. And it was no longer a problem with relationships that I couldn't find the perfect person or the perfect job or the job I was in or whatever. That somehow it had to do with me. And I wasn't sure what that was or why that was until the first noble truth started to dawn on me. And the Buddha's first noble truth is a central statement to look at our discontentedness, our our malcontent. 
to look at our discomfort and our struggle. It's a call not to sort of whitewash the world as all of life is suffering, because that's not what the Buddha said. It was, a, it was an intention or a direction or a urge to look at where and what these problems were and to look and face the pain of these problems, to orient ourselves so that we were actually looking at the pain rather than wiggling from it or struggling from it or in some ways being so aversive to it that our whole life was constructed around it in avoidance. And then it dawned on me that the spiritual journey is the journey to end this discontent, this struggle, this conflict, and that the spiritual awakening is awakening to the causes of what this conflict was. Then when I had those pieces, it made sense to me. I mean, if I have a a headache, I may take an aspirin. If I have an ache in my pain, an ache in my heart, I may have to grieve and do some bereavement work. Always I had something that I, if I was in pain, I had some way to access or to undo that pain. But there was a a kind of a, a substrata of pain in which I could do nothing about of just a feeling of being, no matter where I was, of being outside of life, to being sort of looking in at life as if, as if it wasn't a part of me so much as I was trying to grab it. And that felt to me like a spiritual problem, not a psychological one, not a physical one. And so at that point, I said, okay, this is the problem. This is the problem we have, that there, we carry a kind of inward struggle with us and that maybe, according to the literature, that the understanding of what this struggle is and how it has entangled me and in fact disempowered me, maybe in the understanding of that, there is another quality of perception another dimension of wholeness that is accessible. I don't know, that's theoretical, but at least it was resonating with me in some kind of reasonable sense. And the Buddha said that it has to be reasonable. It has to make sense to you. All along the way, you should say, okay, I understand what I'm doing. I may not have experienced the fruits of this, but it's resonating, so it makes sense to me. So now once we know the problem which standing on my head never gave me the, what was I, what was that, how was that working for me? Again, it's not to uh, negate the tradition, it was just that it wasn't working for me. So this tradition has to work for us, and this one may not, it may be another tradition that works more for you. But once I have the problem, I know the problem, which is an enormous step towards maturity, in spiritual practice. It's a more enormous step towards maturity and being a human being to admit that the problem is internal, that it resides within us, and to stop looking for the excuses of the problem externally. It's an enormous sense of maturity. Then I have to say, okay, how do I access this problem? 
So tonight I want to talk about four facets of meditation. Four facets. And the first facet is in developing a tool to access this problem so that I can understand it, so that I can get a feeling for what's going on. The tool we develop in Buddhism, in this tradition, is a mindfulness. Mindfulness, the ability to attend. And I love the simplicity of that. I love the fact, okay, I have the problem, but I also have the solution within myself. That I'm sort of like, I'm the whole case. I don't really need something from the outside, to somebody to give me something that I don't already have. I just need to access and to sharpen the tools that I have. Okay, so that makes sense to me again. And so I could see that if I could sharpen this tool of attention sufficiently, I could then shine that attention upon the problem and I could begin to understand through my attention, through actually being able to connect with the problem rather than excuse it to see what the difficulty was. And that made sense to me. And in fact, it took a long time, but over time I began to feel an increased ability to sustain my attention upon the difficulties that I, were, that I was having. First of all, just having the willingness to put your attention upon the difficulties is almost counterindicated in how we live our lives. We don't want this. This is, where, this is, this is the area we do not want to go in. You know, not anything but looking at, at the problemed area. And yet that's where we have to go. That's where the problem is. And we can't fool ourselves very long in this tradition. But, but we try to. I mean, what, we get sidetracked. Okay, now I'll, ju- I'll just keep sharpening my samadhi. I'll just keep getting it razor sharp. You know, you've sharpened a knife. You can cut the turkey. But now you're going th- you want to cut the bone. Now you want to even be able to slice the plate. You know, it's like, where does it end? Well, you just want to cut the meat. You just want to be able to sustain your attention upon something. But because that's an attribute that I have never had before, it starts being very alluring. Because, wow, I can, you know, I can really cut. You know, I, there's an enormous sharpening of the mind that can occur. And you can plummet down into the depths of some of the regions of mind that are completely inaccessible to those who don't have sustained attention. And that's, whoa, you know, that's, that shows me a different side of myself. That's not the problem. Not at all. It's just giving me another sense of myself. So we can play in that, and many of us do, and there's no good or bad in that. It's just, it's just sort of, um, it's like fender repair. Doesn't do much to the motor. But it makes the car look better. (laughs) So we can play that a little bit, play fender repair a little bit. But then we realize that mindfulness, that mindfulness is where, just the willingness to 
sustain our attention. And we'll say, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to sustain, I'm going to really be mindful today. And we'll be mindful for about uh, 10 seconds. <laughs> and then we'll remember per maybe at 4 p.m. that we're going to be mindful that day. Does this sound familiar? And we think, is this, is this tool working at all? And we have to have enormous patience with the process because we are against the whole momentum of our conditioning, the whole movement of our past, to, which plays upon a forgetting. Our, the way we operated through all the decades of our life were to condition a sense of forgetting into ourselves. Why? Because we didn't want to see the problem. Now, just because we in our heart have some intimation that we need to now see the problem doesn't mean that we're going to be able to counter these decades of conditioning in which we did not want to see the problem overnight. It's just not going to turn around like that. For most people, most situations, it doesn't. But if we are persistent, because this makes sense to me, Oh, I can forget it and go back and live my life pretty much as I have. And then on my deathbed, will there be regret? Would there be any moment there when I say, oh, if I had just 30 years ago when I took that meditation course? Was there that moment, that moment of (gasps) dying, frightened, or full of argument? Okay, so we have the problem, and we just we can we can outlast it. You know, it, the beauty of this is that if you have the willingness to return to the problem, you will melt down the resistance and obstacles that keep you forgetting. If you are willing. And we begin to see that what I bring to this tool, this mindfulness, really gets in the way. All of the other baggage that I've brought, and when I look out in my mindful way and I start looking at anything, I have a whole bunch of thoughts about what I'm seeing. And that seems to obscure or cloud or color that, that I'm seeing. And so the mindfulness doesn't feel completely trustworthy if I'm relating to it through the judgments and the opinions and the conclusions and all of the contamination that I bring to the seeing. So then I say, okay, this has got to be trustworthy. How can I, I've lived my life not being able to trust anything, really, because all I've been able to do is see what I internally want to see or project that I want to see through my judgments and things. So now now I've got to have a clearer tool than this. My mindfulness just can't be in seeing. It has to be a clear tool. It has to be something that I can trust, something that I can count on, something that I can say, yes, whatever this shows me, it's true. It's the fact. 
So I watch for anything which contaminates that mindfulness. Any reactivity I might have, any judgments I might bring to it, any opinions. Because I just want to see what the mindfulness sees. I just want to see the pure seeing. So we work a long time on purifying the seeing, the mindfulness itself. You know, I mean, I can be at home with my wife and sit there and listen to her in one of two ways. I can listen to to her through the many years that we've been together. I can listen that way. I'm being mindful, or I think I am. But I'm just really blocking everything she says with my own judgment. Or I can have a wider mindfulness that hears the judgment and sees through the judgment to what is actually being heard rather than what the judgment tells me is being heard. So now, okay, now I'm beginning to sharpen this tool to a point where I can trust it because I can hear what it is that's mistrusting. I can hear why, since I can hear the judgments, my mindfulness now, see mindfulness is more basic than the mind states that obscure it. It's like the floor that you walk into in a house. The floor is there and everything that walks in, walks in on that floor. But the mindfulness is the floor. And so every, if we have the intention of seeing and really listening, as the poem said, then everything that walks on that floor that uh, tries to obscure that seeing will also be a part of the listening. So now I'm really into this because I can trust something for the first time in my life. Many of us have spent a life in which we haven't been able to trust anything at all. It's been a deep sadness in us for our lack of being able to trust. And here's a tool in which no one is doing anything to me except I am doing it to myself. And lo and behold, I can hear what I'm doing to myself. And when I hear what I'm doing to myself, I therefore know how it is that I'm obscuring and confusing the object that is being seen. So that's the first that's the first thing that really made sense to me because it was right there. You see this whole practice has to be right in front of our eyes. It has to be available to each one of us. And it doesn't have to be available just when we sit. It has to be available all the time has to be universally available. If meditation were only the little bit of time we spent sitting, then our spiritual lives would only have that percentage of the day accorded to it. But in fact, our whole life is spiritual. And mindfulness is a, when it is developed sufficiently, permeates the fabric of all activity and all movement. So that's the first facet of meditation. The second facet is that now that I have a tool, first now I, first is I know the problem. So okay, in relationship to that problem I've developed a tool. The tool is now to the point where it's relatively trustworthy 
and it's proficient enough that I can actually allow my attention to settle and keep it on and sustain it for a while. So the next facet is that we have to train it on ourselves. We have to use the tool on ourselves. Since we are the problem, I've acknowledged that, which is a huge step, and in fact, it will probably take most of us our spiritual lives to really settle with that responsibility, to be accountable. That's really what we're doing, is learning to be accountable and not wiggle. You know, when you're at home and your spouse or significant other or roommate says something that catches your pain body, in that moment, are we accountable? Let's not pretend (laughs) that there isn't a lot more work that all of us need to do. And I especially want to say this to the more sophisticated and experienced meditators. There can become a kind of um, way that we begin to sleepwalk. We think we've done it. We think we know it. We've heard all the words. But there isn't an acuity. There isn't a, a vibrancy, a vitality anymore, a zest there's no sharpness. It's a, it's a dullness. And I can feel the dullness in some of you. And you're back to sleep in ways that your mind is defying your heart. And you, because it's up here, we think it's in here. But if there isn't that vitality, that interest anymore... If we think we've gone through this, we know enough now, well, I suggest we look again. So now comes the much harder task of using this tool to take ourselves apart. And where we land in the beginning is on our bodies. If you, those of you who are new to the practice, if you remember, we started by focusing our attention on the physical, on the physical body. Physical body for two reasons. One is the physical body is a grounded, is grounded. It's, it's as um, concrete and objective of an object that we'll ever have. So <clears throat> it provides a sense of groundedness, especially if we have a lot of air or fire in us, we need that grounding. That ground. And then we also have to begin to explore this thing because many of us have lived as the short story, I think it was Thurber who wrote, Mr. Smith lived five feet from his body. (laughs) Many of us live in a kind of a distant and abstract way to our body because whenever we go in the supermarkets, our bodies don't line up with what we see on the covers of the magazine or because of various input that we've had 
through lots of sources, somehow or other, we have felt alienated from the body. And so we have to first own this thing again. And for some people, that's very, very difficult to do, even to be willing to settle back in. And all of us have opinions about certain parts of our body. And we have to come into those opinions once more. Remember, the opinions are what obscures the tool. So we have to re-own the opinion. As long as I'm not owning the opinion, I'm operating from the opinion, and this tool is no use whatsoever. So to make the tool useful, I have to come back into my opinions and see through the opinions, being accountable to the opinion. And so this is too little, this is too big, this is too... I have to go through all of that. I'm aging, I'm not who I was. We go through all of that. We come back into the body. And the tool of the body, I mean, there's a uh, meditation technique called sweeping. And I encourage some of you who haven't done it to do it. Uh, and it's in the Goenka tradition, which is a different Vipassana tradition. I don't suggest that you stay in that tradition because the tradition is very exclusive. It cuts you off from the rest of the meditators. It has you only meditate with those people who are of like minds. And I just wouldn't recommend that tradition, but I would recommend doing the practice. So you do a 10-day retreat with that style of practice, sweeping. You really get a deep sense of what this body is. Is it, It's not as substantial or solid as we think it to be. It's full of space. It's full of air. And you also get a lot of the images, the projections that we've given the body reflecting back to us. So it's a very... Um, and a deep sense of, of being able to sustain our attention because the body, again, is that concrete element and they only use the body in this particular practice. So I, I would suggest doing it. Go do it and then leave it. You know, I worked with uh, overweight, um, in this particular case, overweight uh, adults and when I was just back from being a monk. And... Um, I was, they had, it was, uh, I think it was Weight Watchers Anonymous, I'm not sure, but I was like the eighth session and a tenth session course, and I was to come in and teach the meditation. And the first thing I said was, um, before you go to the refrigerator, uh, stop and see whether the hunger, which is having, which is encouraging you to go to the refrigerator, is coming from physical hunger or loneliness or depression or mental state. And there was this silence, and then they said, we never heard that before. And they said, how come you didn't come the first session? (laughs) And I thought, whoa. (laughs) If we're not even connected at that level of being able to know whether the reason that we feed ourselves is for physical hunger or for mental state, loneliness, or really, but how many of us know that? When we're at the refrigerator door, or when we use whatever form of distraction that is our little... What do, we, do, we, do we ever first connect with what the body is doing and what the mind is doing? So 
after the body comes the mind. And now we're into the, now we're into the thick of things. Inevitably, when you start watching anything, you're going to watch through the mind. And so we've been watching the mind even as we've been watching the body. But when we start actually taking this tool of attention, of mindfulness, and shining it back on the mind to look into the caves and darkened areas, we have to be prepared to be disenchanted, (coughs) to be discouraged. Because what is reflected back is the worst side of us, is all of what we have been running on, the gas that has kept us going, the fuel that has compelled us. And we see our greed, we see our selfishness, we see our vanity. We'll stand at the mirror and you know what what you're doing as you're coming, you know, you know all that, you see it because it's right there in front of us each and every action we take. And at this point, many people burn their zafus. <laughs> so what, this practice is making me more selfish. This practice is making me more vain. And it's just revealing the vanity that has been driving us. So we have to be, have more courage <laughs> and to hold ourselves in place and to say, okay, let me look at this thing now. Because when the mind, when, there's one thing, you know, when we start, when we open ourselves to the mind, we're opening ourselves to our lifetime patterns. Ooh. And our lifetime memories, our lifetime pains, our lifetime guilt, our lifetime shame. You see? Because that is what's been driving us. Again, unless we become accountable to that pain, unless we go into the middle of that pain, it will always drive us. Whoa, but I didn't want to do this. I wanted to become calm and peaceful. This is the way to become calm and peaceful. You can't develop a quality of mind in opposition to the pain. It's through the pain that the calm and the peace and the clarity comes because it is exactly the reaction to the pain that has kept us confused and disoriented and at odds with ourselves. So we have to re-own. You see how difficult this is? This is so... Okay, so this is it. Then we come to the hard regions of the mind. The endless thinking. Oh, man, just, oh, God, another thought. (laughs) Hmm? Endless habits. Just seeing ourselves habit. She says this and I say that. You know, he says this and I do that. Our defensiveness. All of those. Denial. The rationalization. All of that. Okay, we have to re-own it. We do this gently. And this is the saving grace of the practice. Because the practice, the meditation, mindfulness, really is ease. Is the development of ease. And yes, we have to recover 
the angst and the fear and the self-hatred. But we do it with a practice that is just, it's just, it's a benediction. It's not, it's not the waving finger of our angry mother. You know, it's with the tenderness of just seeing and holding, just being with, just feeling it. And there's nothing, there's no retribution in that. I don't, there's no, I don't have to cringe in the corner uh, in fear of this retaliation of what it happens when I open to my shame. I, I don't have, it's just that. It's just this. It's just this much. There's no more that it holds. The worst has long since been over. The worst has been in the fear and the running from it, not in its recovery. The healing and the wholeness and the tenderness and the gentleness and the self-affection and warmth is in the recovery. The self-brutality was in the running from it. So I really recover my own self-kindness. And that's what we're doing to think of it in that direction rather than having to look at how ugly these insides are to think of it rather as, okay, this selfishness, being with this selfishness allows me the cultivation of my self-kindness. Now we're not finished yet. The third facet of the meditation is to look outward and to see how it is that the laws of life, we have distorted those laws. So I've looked at my mind now, I've looked at my body, I have a general awareness of what my mind is doing in the mind states that come at me and the ability to be present with that. I've sharpened a tool called mindfulness that allows me to have some sense of trust in the tool itself. I've looked at the body and I've begun to own myself and come back into my body rather than to flee from it. Now I look out and I see that people are generally misperceiving life because now I've developed a tool in which I can see through that which has driven me. And once you can see the motivating reasons why we have gotten involved in what we do, we begin to see the deeper aspects of life itself free from the motivation, which has camouflaged those deeper principles. So now I can begin to see that where I thought there was permanent happiness, I was taking that which is impossible to satisfy as being satisfying. That, this, that the things in life can never completely satisfy. How can they when they're tumbling over the waterfall of change continuously? It makes no sense to rest on those as being some form of eternal satisfied satisfaction. So now I've seen that. I see that. I see other people doing it and I see the hurt and the pain that inevitably has to come from a world that's in perpetual decay, perpetual decay. Okay, so I've seen that now. 
And I've seen the illusion of permanency, taking that which is inherently unstable as being stable. Okay, that, and I see my own aging, and I see the deaths of loved ones of other generations. And I look at the old movies, the 1920 movies, and realize that everybody on that screen has died. And look how beautiful they are. Look at the, look how beautiful. And then I began to realize through all of this that I'm also have taken what inherently, inherently lacks independent existence as being independently existing. That this thing, this thing called a person, was never in isolation. The isolation came from my defensiveness to the pain, from my resistance to life, from my backing away from life, backing away from the conflicts and struggles which have driven me back into the corner, and so the corner is my safeguard and everybody else is out there, to the middle of the room where I can stand and say yes to the world. Okay. Okay, so here I am, right in the middle of the room. But I'm not in the middle of the room alone. I'm in the middle of the room connected Because when we're not so caught in the defensiveness and the protectionism and the isolating sense of keeping ourselves protected against life, when we relax that a little, then inherent connectedness is there. It's not as if everything melts into a kind of a melted wax so that I see I can't I, don't, I see individuation but there's no separation in the spaces that seem to have divided before which brings me to the fourth facet of meditation Relaxing and holding and letting be. Now I realize that there's nothing I ever had to do about anything. That this tool has done its perfect work. It has shown me with my willingness to look at my pain. It has shown me the pain. It has shown me what has caused that suffering. It has shown me how I have stepped out of life and protected myself from it. Now I'm going to step back into it. And when I step back into it, there's nothing I need to do any longer except relax into it. And now that I can relax into it, I can let it be, which throws up another whole resistance I have because I'm used to influencing or controlling And yet I see in its essence what life needs is to be left alone. I need to be, to leave myself alone. And the art of living is to attune to 
but to not influence another. If that could really be... When you're with somebody who's dying... See, I, I go right to that because this, the rest of it doesn't show as clear of an example as this. When you're with somebody who's dying and they're screaming inside because they are dying and what they most want is somebody to meet them, to accompany them, to join them so that they can have company in that. And when, I, when a person can meet that, they meet their own death. Hmm? And we're not, I'm not trying to get them so that they aren't afraid of dying. That would be absurd. But to be with them in their fear of dying. Not to, not to try to change the strat. Now, when, they're, when we are together in their fear of dying, they have the opportunity to use their tool of awareness to come to deep and profound understanding of what fear of death is about. If I meet them in their fear of dying with encouragement, you'll be okay, it's an easy thing, it's easy. I've seen thousands of people die, <laughs> you have nothing to worry about, dear. Then I'm essentially robbing them of that potential. And when we have used that potential sufficiently, we know the value of other people being able to hold that same space in their pain. It's not that fear of dying isn't painful. It is painful. But the, it's exactly that there's a correlation between the degree and intensity of fear and the potential of growth. Those are directly proportional to one another. The greater the fear, the greater the potential for growth. And here we are at the greatest fear and therefore the greatest sense of growth potential. So I'm not going to spoil that opportunity for someone. And what they need from me is the willingness to hold that fear with them. Okay. And unless we have done a lot of work, we're not going to want to do that. But you don't go right to that fear. We work with everything that way. The fear of having, of losing part of yourself in aging. The fear of, of anything. The little ones. There. So now, I'm living the question of why do I meditate. I'm not trying to resolve the question anymore because why I meditate, everything that comes in the way between myself and meditation is the reason I meditate. And so constantly in front of me, as I'm living my experience and seeing all the ways I'm trying to protect myself, I'm seeing why I meditate. 
I'm not looking for the answers to why I'm meditating anymore. I'm living the question. And the great art of spiritual inquiry and where this homework intimates us to go is to live the question. Okay, why do I meditate? I hate myself. Do we need another answer? Is there something we're... There it is. Do I have to sit this long? It's hot in this room. It's cold in this room. There's too many people in this room. I don't like social large crowds. I was expecting 20, not 100. Why we meditate? Why we meditate? Why am I meditating? Medit- it's there all the time. It's there every moment in our reactivity, in our dissatisfaction, in our uncomfortableness, in our shyness. The willingness to live is the willingness to know the answer to that question. Not, not to sit for 30 minutes a day. and Not only that. That's included. But when the phone rings in the middle of my sitting, or my young child comes in and distracts me, or something else happens in the house and I have to get up and I say, damn it. <laughs> Why do I meditate? Can we spend a couple of minutes meditating? <laughs> <laughs>